Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SCADcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Matt Nickley. Earlier this month, Queer Eye returned to Netflix with its much-awaited fifth season. Set in the city of brotherly love, season five features ten episodes of life-changing transformations, with spaces reimagined by the Fab Five's interior design guru, today's on-creativity guest, Bobby Burke. Burke has been named America's favorite designer, and it's easy to see why through his vibrant personality, supreme dedication, and love for his clients. His journey to stardom was built through honest hard work. He's an example for all young people kicking off their careers and for those looking to refresh their outlook. Paula Wallace Zoomed with Burke as part of SCAD's ongoing Guest and Gusto program. The two dive into the world of Queer Eye, the necessity for joyful function in living spaces, and how Burke balances his personal design firm with the show. Hint, it involves Burke's tips for mastering remote work. Burke also fields questions from current SCAD students in a Q&A led by recent interior design MFA alumna Sheridan Markham. From SCADcast, this is On Creativity, a conversation between Paula Wallace and Bobby Burke. Couches. Eventually started getting my own places. One thing that started giving me more a sense of home, just finding those little luxuries that make a home full Welcome, Bobby Burke, Queer Eyes Design Expert. I've been looking forward to meeting you because I've been tuning into your show and I just love all the positivity on it. You know, SCAD has the number one rated interior design program in the country. And I think you may be America's favorite interior designer. So let's dive right in. First, our poll, wishful thinking here, what would be your dream small space to design if you could with Bobby? Camper? dorm room, yacht, or treehouse. I am eagerly anticipating season five on Netflix. That's going to be one long binging weekend. Can you give us a teaser as to what to expect? episodes now instead of eight, so 10 full hours to sit there and binge. The City of Brotherly Love. Um, Philly was fun. Um, It was challenging, uh, but it was also very great. You know, it's always challenging doing design in smaller, older spaces, as we all know. Um, and, and Philly is definitely one of those spaces. You know, in Georgia and Kansas City, we had more larger homes. Um, but in Philly, it was a lot of smaller apartments. So smaller spaces, when most, most people out of design would think that smaller spaces are easier because they're smaller. As we all know, they're actually much harder. Well, here Queer Eye is already renewed for a sixth season. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we were actually in Austin filming season six when the pandemic hit. Um, so we got... Early, didn't even actually get one episode done, but we'll we'll be back there soon to finish up the season. So we're excited. Change of plans for everybody. <laughs> that's that's the one thing we cannot do by Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Your life changing queer eye renovations take uh, weeks at least to conceive, but the executions are governed by tight budgets and even tighter installation times. So from concept to reveal, just kind of walk us through it. Um, you know what? Honestly, it it really varies week to week, here to here, there's not really a specific formula. 
Um, we try for there to be, but of course, stuff always goes wrong. You know, wrenches always get thrown, entire trucks full of furniture don't show up. Um, but in a perfect world, um, what happens is I usually go out to whatever city that we're going to be filming in a week or two before the other boys. Um, and my team and I, we find a warehouse and we start filling it full of stuff, um, bedding and pillows and just ordering tons of art, art that at some point you'd look at and you're like, oh, there's no way I'd ever use that. But at some point you do. Um, so I kind of make my own store in a warehouse. Um, and that's how I get away with doing things so quickly is I'm not having to run around each week to a bunch of stores trying to find things. I've pre-done that. And then the week I meet the hero, actually the week a week to two weeks before each hero, we've went out to their home. Um, either I've went out there personally or my, my head of my art department has went out there and we've got measurements. Um, we figured out what we need to do for construction because that kind of stuff has to be planned. Like we need to know if we're gonna replace the floors. Uh, we need to know if we need to replace kitchen cabinets and countertops, those type of things as we all know need to be ordered. They're usually not just sitting around a store somewhere where you can run in and grab them. Um, large pieces of furniture, like sofas, dining tables, those are the type of things that we also pre-plan for. But all of the things that make the home really unique and personal for our heroes, that stuff is pretty much done the week I meet them. And that's where my kind of my warehouse store comes into play. After I meet our heroes on a Tuesday, um, I get to know them. I, I look around their house a little bit more and, you know, I dig around because when I go to pre-scout, it's really just measurements and kind of a construction plan. I honestly, I don't want to get to know more about them then. I really do want what you see on TV to be real. We all do. Um, there have been seasons where we found out a little more about the heroes than we used to. And starting in season five, we actually went back to not knowing anything. We'd rather not um, because then we kind of get preconceived ideas in our mind about who they are. And we'd rather just learn who they are from them. Um, so that week, I after meeting them, I go to my big warehouse and I'm like, huh, this feels like them and this feels like them. And this piece of art that I never thought I would use, you know, actually this is a place that they went on vacation to. So this is really personal to them. So I then have this big moving truck that I have shelves lined up on the side of the moving truck and I filled that full and that's kind of like my little mobile store. And then I pull that up in front of their house and as we're installing, we're going out, we're pulling things. So we always show up with about four times more stuff than we actually know we're gonna use, but we wanna have options. And you know, when you're putting together something that fast, you don't have time to do FF&Es, you know, it's not like everything is planned. It's, you're kind of making it up as you go. So having a lot of options is always best. So that's kind of the plan. The plan is really no plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do a great job and you've certainly um, tackled some, a, a wide variety of interiors too. I think my, my actual interior design business set me up really good for Queer Eye because where most people, you know, with your interior design business, you plan projects out years and your installation often can go over a few weeks, if not a few months, you know. Um, I predominantly work with home builders in my business. Um, one of my first big projects when I started interior design was doing the show homes for the International Builder Show, which did really well and put me in contact with a lot of builders who wanted to change the way mass home builders build. Um, they wanted to do it different. They didn't want to be those typical track homes. And so they brought me in to help them do that. So when we do our installations, we'll often install you know, three to six homes at once 
in a matter of four days. And so I'll pull up with five or six semi trucks full of furniture and not just furniture, but towels and bedding and art and everything for the home. And me and my team will install, you know, three to five to six homes in a few days. And usually the grand opening of those properties and developments will be, you know, that Saturday. So it's not like, oh, I need an extra day or two. So it was really good practice for Queer Eye because I think a lot of designers might have, I don't want to say a lot of designers would have crumbled, but it's stressful, you know, with timelines, especially when you can't push anything back on the show. You know, there is no, oh, I need an extra day. Something happened. Because if we push one episode back, that eats into the next episode, which then eats into the next episode. And all of these are very strategically planned. You know, most of our heroes have jobs and they've specifically asked off for time from work and that can't be moved. So there is never, I need an extra day. The only time I have ever had an extra day was the firehouse episode. And that was pre-planned because since it was a government building, I had to have some inspectors come in. But mm -hmm. other than that, it is always a Tuesday through Friday, except Wesley in season four, um, who used a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. I actually got a full two weeks for that because it was the first time I really like went through and completely gutted a house. And I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't just change the home's looks. I wanted to make sure I changed the home and the way it functioned for him as well. Yeah, very impactful episode. Sorry for the noise if you hear the Vitamix going all the way downstairs. Apparently my husband <laughs> is making a smoothie. All right. About the fact that I'm on a Zoom. <laughs> Despite those time and budget constraints, your renovations on the show are really spectacular. But those reveals, everyone loves a good before and after. So other than Wesley's, uh, what's been your most rewarding after so far on the show? Hmm. In what way? In a way in which I'm most pleased with the outcome of the look or with how it, hmm. If we're talking about how pleased I am with the outcome of the look, if you want to go like based on my personal aesthetic, like if, when I walk in and I'm like, oh, I want to live here. Um, AJ's lost from season one. He's a young man who came out to his stepmom. He lived in that beautiful old vintage factory. That was one of my personal favorites. Um, it, it really burned my soul that he put it on the market a week later and sold it. Uh, but in his defense, they got engaged. They were moving into his fiance's house. So I don't hold it against him. I just wish he had, you know, given me a little percentage of it. Who knows? Uh, um, Neil Reddy from season one. Um, I love the way his came out. It's very much my own personal aesthetic, you know, a black kitchen. Um, uh, let's see, who else? You know what? Probably though, for reveal of how it changed. I mean, it, it's, they've all changed their lives, but I think the ones that the space that I did changed not just a family's life, but a community's life. Like for example, uh, the Jones sisters in season three or four, I was in Kansas City, um, Jones sisters barbecue. Mm -hmm. um, being able to help two women who worked so hard, who were so amazing, had such great vision, and such passion for what they do and being able to put them on the world stage for everyone to see how amazing they are and to mm -hmm. watch their business explode <laughs> and to open doors for them that normally, you know, sadly wouldn't have been open. Um, and you know, it's the not that we, we have something more than they do. It's just, we have TV cameras, which often open up doors. 
So it's, those are the reveals. Like that's uh, Mama Tammy's community. <laughs> that's that right. Was, yeah. yeah, the Tears Lounge was amazing. And the farm, uh, the farm to table, that was, that was very cool okay. too. Mrs. Julie, um, funny, that one, as big of a makeover was, we actually got less time on that one. So mm -hmm. we filmed that one in Quincy, Illinois, which was Jonathan's hometown. But at the time we were based in Kansas City and it was, I think a four and a half, five hour drive. So instead of putting a, the whole crew up in a hotel for a week, they wanted to save budget. And so we actually only had three days to film that entire episode. When normally we start filming, our crew starts filming backstory on a Monday and we end on a Friday. So that, that week was even more compressed. <laughs> wow, great job. And I love hearing everyone's response. And I, I love hearing when we reimagine spaces at SCAD. I just love hearing our students' response. That's just the best part. Well, I know a big topic today and into the future is working remotely. Your online presence has been integral to your brand and you manage your own interior design business remotely too. So here at SCAD, we've been, of course, engaged in e-learning, especially spring quarter, um, and it's been very successful, especially during all these virtual times. From your website to social media to conducting business remotely, how does your online branding and design work function remotely so well? Tips for everyone. Um, you know, I have been working remotely for the last 10 years, or no, more than that, the last 15, really. Um, I first started working remotely a lot because I had my own furniture store. So I first, I first started online with bobbyburkhome.com and I was one of the first online retailers of furniture out there. There was just me and like two out of, no, if you remember like Velocity Art and Design out of Seattle, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Design Public. We were like the first three websites out there to sell furniture. And then, you know, along came the Wayfarers and everybody else. And then it became not so easy of a thing to do. But um, so I first started out online and then I opened up a store in Soho in New York. And then that did well. So I opened up one in Miami and then Atlanta and then LA. And because I was a small company, you know, when you're a small company, you wear a lot of hats. Um, <laughs> so anytime there was a manager who was sick or, you know, got fired or quit, I would be on a plane. Or anytime there was an issue at a yeah. store, I would be on a plane. So I was always at another store and I was always having to steal, steal. Oh, see, my Southern accent just came out. It comes out every once in a while. Uh, I was still having to deal with, you know, my corporate office and design firm and all the other stores. So working remotely has always just kind of been a part of my business. And honestly, without being able to work remotely, my business would have never been what it is today. Um, especially once getting cast on Queer Eye. Um, without being able to work remotely and have you know video calls with my team you know weekly if not daily i wouldn't be able to do what i do uh, because on you know on top of basically running a design firm called queer eye um you know i still run a full-time real design firm so being able to stay connected with my team has been integral and i think in this day and age it's even more and it's something it's almost something you know a silver lining that this situation has taught us the importance of it and the, the benefits of it. You know, I think that hopefully this will maybe reduce some unnecessary business travel that we really didn't need to do. And I think that hopefully that will, you know, reduce some air pollution that we don't really need to be doing. You know, I think we can realize that we really can manage business and learn this way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm proof of that. I've created a successful company 
running it from thousands of miles away at any given time. Um, it's just a matter of really utilizing those tools and making sure that you do stay connected. Um, you know, the less often you do it, the the more the more you don't, you know, oh, I've just missed that video call. It's okay, we don't need to do that weekly checkup. And then before you know it, it's been a month and you haven't done a checkup on a design project. And then you're like, oh crap, none of this is the way I wanted it. So it's, it, it can be harder to, to stay committed to doing it when you're not face to face. But at the end of the day, I, I think you can get a whole lot more done. Well, you seem very organized, and it does require a lot of discipline to work remotely. And I know last year you launched um, your debut furniture line with ART Furniture, including many modular pieces. So uh, tell me more about your multifunctional line. Um, you know, my collection, I have wanted to do my own collection for years. I had a lot of my own private label stuff in my stores, but I was never able to really do a full-blown collection. And with ART, the partnership was really perfect because my, one of my biggest goals has always been to expand into Asia. Um, it's my favorite part of the world. I, I get to China and I just, I feel at home. So it was very important to me to partner with a company who had a large presence in Asia. And our parent company is Marcor. They're based in Tianjin, China, outside of Beijing. And they're just an amazing, you know, multi-hundred million dollar family company. Um, the family still runs it. All the executives have been there since the founder started it when he was young. It's a very people-first company, which is very important to me. But the collection I love because it, it spans the globe. Um, you know, I was able to offer a collection that's um, unique here to the States. And then I was also able to adapt that collection to make it more unique to China with our the finishes and the fabrics and sizes. So the brand and the collection has a cohesion across different continents, but because of the capabilities of Marcor and ART, I was able to really tailor that to our clients across the globe. Um, fans and customers all the time after watching Queer, I was like, oh, I wish, you know, you could help me pick out all the furniture for my house. And obviously I can't do that, but that was one of the inspirations for doing my line was I'm like, actually I kind of can now, you know, cause every piece of my collection was, you know, designed if not fully by me and part by me and, all the fabrics and finishes were put together by me and my team. So you're really able to find a complete look. And I also am not one of those designers that I like matchy sets and collections, you know, like, oh, here's our three piece set, you know. <laughs> um, I think, you know, for, for some people who don't want to hire designers and stuff, I, I think it works for them. But for me, it's just, obviously, we probably all feel the very same way right now. I'm preaching to the choir. Um, so I, I made sure that every piece of my collection can go with every other piece. So yes, if you wanna buy that matching sofa and chair, you can, but every sofa and chair in the collection in some way goes together because there's, some, there's some, something about the finish that will mesh with the others. Even the different you know, occasional table collections, you don't have to do matching coffee tables and side tables because all the coffee tables and side tables somehow with their finish coordinate with each other. And so you can really make your home look very custom and unique uh, with and stay within the same collection. And one of the great things about working with ART and Mark Moore is because of the massive manufacturing capabilities they have globally, we were able to make it at a price point that's quite attainable. Is it, you know, some people have complained it's not cheap enough. My response to them is, okay, but it's also not gonna land, end up in a landfill in a year. You know, I, it was very important to me that I created a collection that had some longevity and quality to it 
that when you buy it, it's in your home for years. And the only reason why it leaves your home is because you just get tired of it and you give it to a friend. Um, you know, it's not something that's going to fall apart. It's not that, you know, flat pack furniture, it all comes assembled and it's going to last a long time. So it might be something that you've got to save up for, for a month or so, but it's also something that you're not going to have to replace. Um, you know, price point wise, I would probably put it, it's actually less expensive than West Elm. So it's, it's still very much an entry price point. It's just, you know, not a Bob's discount furniture price point. It's not free. Yeah, it's not free. You know, quality, quality, unfortunately, isn't cheap. We all know that, you know, we, we value engineered it as much as we possibly could without compromising quality and with also without compromising environmental standards. You know, there's always ways in our business to do things cheaper if you want to compromise our planet. And for me, that that's not an option, you know, um, it even, to be honest, even having a product line sometimes bother me, bothers me because I just consumption is something that I, I have issues with. Um, but that's why I also went out of my way to make sure it was a line that once you bought, you didn't have to keep consuming, you know, it is something you keep and you can pass it on to friends or family. Yeah. Some things I've had, I've moved them around from a bedroom to a dining room to a foyer. They, yeah. they move around with me. Yeah. I get asked that all the time right now by, by press and publications of, you know, how can people freshen up their homes right now when, you know, we're all on a budget. We're not really wanting to spend money. I'm like, move your stuff around, you know, move that for, even if it's keeping the furniture in the same room, move it around to a different location. You know, I, when I was little, I used to change my bedroom around all the time. I'd move the bedroom <laughs> from wall to wall, you know, I, that was one of my favorite things to do. And that's a really great way right now to, to change your space. And even if you're a young design student, I think it's a really great way to make a little extra money right now is if you're getting into your design clients, you don't necessarily have to say, Hey, we're going to go out and get a bunch of new stuff. Like I can come in and restage your home to make it look fresh and new without you spending a penny, just pay me hourly, you know? So I think that's a really great way. And even if it's, even if it's digitally, you know, offering mm -hmm. those services, I think is a really great way. We're all having to learn how to evolve right now with our businesses, um, myself included. Uh, so, yeah. yeah that, that's very smart. From color theory that we teach at SCAD to all things audiovisual and fragrance and fibers, all these programs, we're always looking to engage the senses what are some commonly overlooked opportunities to make a big sensory impact in an interior, like touch, scent, sound? What do you love? Um, honestly, I, I think it's touch. A lot of I'm not a big fan of color. I'm not a huge fan of print. That's just me personally. Um, although I, I do use some color and print on Queer Eye, you know, I'm designing for my clients. When people mm -hmm. are so like, "Oh, which one? Which episode on Queer Eye is your set?" I'm like, "None of them are. That's for them." You know, I'm not designing for them. I'm, for me, I'm designing for them. Um, so I like creating drama and impact and interest with texture and patterns with, with different texture, lots of woven and natural materials. So I, I think it's a sense of feel, you know, a lot of times people just design for what looks pretty and not how it feels when you're, when you're sitting on it, when you're touching it, when you're feeling it. So I think it's feel. Mm-hmm. To kickstart my dream of SCAD, I left a teaching job and sold my beloved Volkswagen Beetle and scrimped and saved my public school teacher's salary. And I know you left home at a young age and worked many retail jobs and you moved to New York with a suitcase and $100. So quite the risk. Uh, where do you think you got your grit and ambition from? I don't even know, honestly. I, you know, I, I think what I've come to realize is my grit and ambition came from just the 
the kind of I'll show you. You know, I I grew up in a small town where I, you know, I didn't have the background in education. You know, I left home at 15. I dropped out of high school because I had no choice at the time. Um, and I was always just told that I wasn't going to make anything happen. You know, it wasn't going to be successful. You know, I was going to end up in jail because I was, you know, too strong-willed. And it was kind of just like, a, I'll show you, you know. And I think my drive was just, to, it, it was, there was no other option. You know, there was never really a fallback. I didn't have, you know, an option of going back home or living anywhere but my car, you know. Um, so I, I think it was my drive was because there was no other option. But I, you know, even if you have other options, I think you can still have that kind of drive, you know. Earlier this year, Architectural Digest listed you among the most famous interior designers working today. Yay, Bobby. <laughs> That's one measure of success. What's your measure of success? Hmm. You know, honestly, I think my measure, and this might sound a bit cliche, but I think my measure of success is how I'm able to not only be successful, but also to help other people along the way. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important to bring people up along with you. Um, I believe in the law of abundance, you know. I, I think that there is enough success for everyone out there, and to think that life is a competition, it, it's not. You know, life is honestly, to me, life is only a competition with myself. Um, I think that taking the time to build other people up along with you is the key to success. You know, we've all had to learn uh, some new habits for expressing ourselves, like don't touch your face. And your show has a lot of heart. What are you guys going to do about all the hugging? I honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, so those type of things are, are left up to our amazing producers and our production team and our phenomenal network, Netflix. You know, Netflix is, you have no idea, the powerhouse and the machine that they are. Um, they are phenomenal at making things work. And I know they will make this work. You know, they'll figure out a way to not only continue to make a great show, but to keep us all safe at the same time. You know, I'm sure there's mm -hmm. going to be quarantine involved. Um, but yeah. That I have no idea because we we all the boys and I were laughing. We're like we are, our show is not a social distancing show. It is There's really no way to social distance and film our show. You know, our show really is about not only the emotional connection but the the physical connection, the hugging. You know, the how we interact with people. So yeah, I I don't have an answer to that, but luckily it's above my pay grade. Yeah, <laughs> you described your design aesthetic as urban luxury, trying to use only two words. How would you describe each of the styles of your fellow Queer Eye castmates, Tan, Karamo, Anthony, and Jonathan? Um, <laughs> let's see. Tan would definitely be cottage chic because he, he loves a good old, old British lady look but it still comes out chic because it modernizes it. Um, actually, the funny thing is, I was just on the phone with Jonathan a few minutes before we got up here. Um, and we were talking about some design I'm working on for him. And he actually used the word cottage. And I was like, wait, what? You want cottage? But then once we talked about it, he realized, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I meant. Um, so I was just like, wait a minute, where did I just get the word cottage? I'm like, it just came from Jonathan. Um, but Jonathan, I would say like an organic modern. Um, Anthony is definitely a sleek modern. Um, Anthony's taste is impeccable. I, I love his homes always look great. Um, and then Karamo, I don't know, because Karamo, 
his house looks exactly like I designed our loft and he didn't even realize it, but I went to his house the first time after he bought it. And I was like, you realize that sectional is the same one that I picked for the loft and that chair and this wallpaper. And he's like, it is, isn't it? So I think his is just queer eye cool. <laughs> he always loves the one color look too. That micro, yeah. Yeah. His house, it, it's beautiful. His house um, has a lot of navies in it, a lot of dark or uh, like, moody colors it's really pretty he did a good job with it i was proud of him it's funny all the boys after we got done filming season one and two actually not uh, all of them yeah so jonathan before we even got done filming hired his ex who's a designer to come design his apartment because after seeing me transform people's homes every week and seeing how it really affected their lives he's like i can't go home to my apartment that's not designed and Karamo did the same thing. The first thing he did when we got home from filming was he was even at the time in, in a rental and he put in new floors and redid the kitchen. And he's like, I can't live in an undecorated home anymore. I thought it was okay, but now I really see how much design affects your life. And so they both went home and instantly redid their places. Um, and Tan was in the process of doing his as well. So yeah, it, it, was, it was nice to, for, to be able to teach them how important design is. You know, a lot of times people think it's just a, you know, a, a shallow profession, just like kind of like fashion. Sometimes people are like, oh, it's not necessary, but it is, you know, once mm -hmm. people really see how a well-designed, well-organized, well-put-together room makes them feel and how it really can change the way their day operates. You know, when you start out your day in a bathroom that's annoying as hell because it's not organized well, you start out annoyed, you know, every time you open the cabinet, something falls down because you don't have it really designed well that's that's the level you start your day out at. And you know, when you go to bed at night and the same bathroom is annoying you, you know, you go to bed agitated. So people start to realize when they are exposed to good design, just how much design and design professionals can, can change their lives, not just at home, but their whole day at work, their family interaction, mm -hmm. you know, making that kitchen flow better can cause way less fights when people are trying to cook at dinner. You know, so we are, people always say that interior designers are also therapists. We are. Yeah, I love it. So true. I mean, you guys are so warm and convey such caring and expansive knowledge and you give such good advice. I certainly look forward to seasons five and six. Um, your show is very entertaining, but also educational. So hopefully we'll see you on campus sometime soon. I would love to. I would love Thank to. Thank you. And now I'd like to invite interior design graduate students Sheridan Markham to lead our audience Q&A. Hi, Sheridan. Hello. Thank you, President Wallace. And thank you, Bobby, for joining us today. Is that a Zoom background or is that your actual place? This is my apartment. It's very, as you can see, we've got the same kind of color scheme going on. <laughs> a lot of all white, but some nice, warm, kind of orangish wood leather tones. To kick off our Q&A, I would love to ask you a question, Bobby. So it's the end of our spring quarter at SCAD, and we have a lot of students graduating and starting the next chapter of their careers. As creatives, we're constantly seeking what path is right for us to land our dream job. What do you look for in candidates when hiring at your interior design firm? You know, for me, I, especially when I was first starting to my design firm, I looked for people who did, knew how to do things that I didn't know how to do. Um, you know, I don't have the education that you guys have. You know, I, for this, I still don't know how to use CAD. You know, I know how to use Photoshop. I self-taught myself Photoshop really well, but that's the only program really I know. 
Because um, again, I wasn't lucky enough to go to a great school like SCAB that has taught you the, the computer skills that you need. So for me, I have always looked for the designers who really know those type of skills. Because in the beginning, those are the skills you really need to know. Because often as a junior designer, you don't really know your aesthetic. And often when you're working for another firm, it doesn't really matter what your aesthetic is. It, it matters what the firm's look is and that you can adapt. And the more that you can adapt the way you think about design in the way that your senior designer or your client thinks, the better designer you'll be. If everything about your looks is you, 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 to me, I don't think that's a great designer. So I look for somebody who is able to execute the designs digitally because in this world, especially in this day and age of digital design, that's what we need. Um, and also people that are able to adapt. You know, I always give um, prospective design um, employees multiple kind of exercises that I want them to do. I want them to put together multiple different designs and I want them to all look very different. Um, so I look for people that can do things in a creative way. Um, I also look for people that think about things budget-wise, because at the end of the day, yes, we're all here to make things pretty, but we can't if we don't follow budget. Um, so it's, yeah, it's there's so many different things I look for, but honestly, mainly people who can be team players. You know, I, I don't, I, I want to help make you a star. You know, that's everyone that works for me. I, you know, I hope that someday they have their own firms if they decide to leave, you know. Um, but people that come in thinking they're a star, that won't get you far. So be humble, but be confident. Um, you know, always be confident in what you know. Um, always realize that you are the absolute, you're your best asset. You know, my company, my biggest assets are my people. They are the most valuable part of my company. And you need to realize that you are as well. You are your most valuable asset. So sell your, sell your education, sell your skills, but also, you know, sell yourself because, you know, I always want to make sure that um, people that I work with are somebody that I'd like to grab a drink with, you know, within reason, because everyone should stay professional. Um, but, you know, you, you want to be able to become a part of a family. Like family is very important to me at my company. I don't know if that answered your question. Sorry. Yeah, no, that was wonderful. I completely agree. And it's that what you had talked about, how being able to put your personal design aesthetic aside to be able to cater to somebody else is so important. And it's definitely a hard thing to learn and to recognize because we always think, oh, but I am designing for that person. But sometimes we are yeah. not. Um, but at SCAD, we have um, something called SCAD Pro. And I've been fortunate enough to be a part of two of them. And it's where you work in a team environment with about 18 other students and so I think it's really great that we're kind of preparing to work in a team environment as well because you can't get anything done if you're not able to work with others. Yeah you know and it's I think it's really important especially starting out you know you sometimes you can start out your your own firm and you know sometimes that works sometimes it doesn't you know but I my advice is you know start doing it on your own it's hard trust me you know, it is, it takes a long time. You know, I'm, I'm almost 40. Um, so to go to a, a larger firm or if a large corporate environment isn't your thing, fine. you know, a small boutique firm because you're going to learn more. And if your goal is to ultimately have your own firm, you need that mentor. You need that person who's done it before you and knows what to do. And hopefully you find a person like me who 
who wants you to do that, who doesn't just want you to come work for me the rest of my life. If your goal is to do something more, great, I'm gonna help you, you know, I'm gonna mentor you and teach you how to do that. I love that perspective. And before we hear audience questions, we have the results from our poll. The space our audience would most want to design with you is a treehouse. So That's how do you go about creating that? That's what I picked, yay, good job. I was hoping to pick yacht, I'm like, that is not me. <laughs> We actually, last year, had somebody approach us about doing a yacht, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> that is off-brand for me. I am not, I am not a, a yacht designer. I mean, I could do it, but that's just, I'm, I'm more for the people than the yachts. <laughs> Love that. So how would you go about designing a treehouse? Oh, God, I think that... I love it when I get asked a very specific design question because it could be, it's also relative based on the situation. Um, find the perfect tree, I guess, is where you'd start. Um, I actually have a new show that I'm working on that Treehouse has actually been an idea for an episode and I'm super excited about that because I, I can't wait to dive into it. Also, there's a, a cute little resort down in, in Cabo, down in Baja, Mexico. Uh, it's called Acre. It's... Um, uh, two Canadian guys that came down and started this cute little boutique hotel in Baja, and they have done these tree houses. Um, and if you're doing a boutique tree house hotel, my advice is to put them a little farther apart than they did. Um, so <laughs> think about their use. You know, if it's a tree house for kids, you know, it's one thing. It's it's really honestly the same thing I think about before I start any design project, and it's what is its function. If, you know, a treehouse can be so many different things based on its function. And that's one of the questions I ask myself and the client or the hero in every project is, what is this space's function? So many designers just design for aesthetics and, oh, I want it to look pretty in Architectural Digest, but it functions horribly. Like it's a restaurant that, you know, is a nightmare for the staff to work in, or it didn't really you know, give that restaurant owner every dollar per square foot that it could have. You know, oh, I did this really cool rope swing over there. I'm like, well, you know what? You cost that owner like half a million dollars a year because there could have been three more tables there. That swing was really cool. But, you know, so I know we're talking about treehouse, but function. Is it for kids? Is it for, you know, a space that adults are going to be hanging out in? Then you need to think about, you know, the weights and the loads and not just the prettiness of it. So. Yeah, what's its function? That's definitely a part of our process here at SCAD. Our teachers are always imparting on us that we need to, you know, develop a program that makes sense. What are the areas? Who is your client? And those are the first things we address because I think the tendency for people my age is to just jump into aesthetics and, you know, what's the next thing you that's can book? You know, that's why, yeah, that's why, that's the thing. That's literally the whole reason why we're in it. Like, that's the, the part that makes us tick. So it's very easy to sometimes just jump into a project and focus on the aesthetics, but at the end of the day, you're probably gonna cause yourself to do so much more work than you needed because you're gonna to have to go back and change so many things because you're like, oh, this looks really cool, but this <laughs> this does not work. Aesthetic, you know, this does not work function-wise. So to me, I always start out with the mindset of what is the function of this space? And once I figure out this function of the space, how, okay, now, how do I make it function and how do I make it pretty? 
So the next question is from Isabel Garcia, and she's wondering, how do you apply sustainability in your process of design and selection of materials? You know, I try to work with companies who put the environment first. Um, you know, it's really important to research the brands that you work with, because at the end of the day, it's not always about how cheap the product is and how pretty it looks. It's about the impact that it's had on the environment. And you sometimes you might need to spend a little more money to make sure that you're supporting the companies that really do focus on the environment. Um, uh, you know, companies like Porcelanosa, the flooring company, you know, we use a lot of their LBT on Queer Eye. Um, they make amazing kitchen cabinets. They make tile. You know, it's not just porcelain, but I bring them up because, you know, I've taken the time to actually go to their factories in Spain and watch the fact that they have invested millions into water reclamation systems to where they're recycling their water, you know, to making sure that their factories are really green, to making sure that they're, you know, all of the sawdust that is accumulating in their factories for their kitchen cabinets, they're reusing and they're recycling, you know, so companies that aren't just dumping crap in landfills, you know, they're, they're really spending a good chunk of their, their revenue and their profits to make sure that they're continually making their carbon footprint smaller. Um, what was the question? How do I do it? I, research. Yeah. You know, just, it's, it's not just about aesthetics and price points. Sometimes it is about, you know, setting, making a point to the companies who don't care, you know, that, okay, you might have the better product. It might look prettier and it might be cheaper, but I'm actually going with this company because they care about the environment. And at the end of the day, if our planet is falling apart, their design is the last thing on people's mind, you know? So it's, it's important, you know, do your, do your research and, and find out and make sure that the companies that you work with share your values, because the more we support those companies, the better they will do and the lower they can make their prices and the more they'll be successful. And the ones that don't care won't be successful. You know, we as designers, we need to be the ones that educate ourselves to know who those companies are so that we can support them because our clients don't know. And often our clients don't care. Um, our clients, you know, will just care about the price. So it's our responsibility to educate ourselves and then educate our clients. All right, this is going to cost a little bit more, but this is why. And this is why I think you should make this decision. Next question is from Katie. What advice can you give to a college student who wants to design their own first home on a budget? What are the steps to success in doing so? Um, your own first home, interesting. I mean, I, honestly, you need to look at your budget first, you know, decide where if you're, if you're doing renovations or if it's just design stuff, you know, no one knows how to spend their money better than in design than we do. Um, as, as also, also, no one knows where you're going to get your value back as well. You know, we all know that kitchens and bathrooms, we get our, our most bang for our buck in there. Those are the best resale values. Those are also the two places, as I was mentioning earlier, that frustrating bathroom. Those are also the two places that have the biggest effect on the happiness in your home. Because those are the two places that really need to function. They're not just like a living room where you're just sitting there watching TV. A bathroom needs to function. You're doing very specific things, all kinds of things in that bathroom. Um, the kitchen as well, like it needs to function. So for me, I, if I were doing my first home on a budget, I would focus on those two spaces first. Um, because again, those are the spaces that are your best investment. 
Um, I would also think of ways that I can upcycle things. You know, I'm sure you guys have noticed on season three and four of Queer Eye, I did a lot of painted cabinets, you know, um, and people are always like, oh, why are you painting cabinets? Paint cabinets so much. I'm like, oh, you think I have the budget for new cabinets? And you think I have the time for new cabinets? Shut up! Painting cabinets, people often think they just need to replace them, and, and you don't. You know, and often, if you look at um, the Rob Elrod episode, which was in, I think, season three, he was the young man who had the two little blonde sons who had lost his wife to cancer. It was like the PS, be nice to your brother. You know, he had purchased that new home and it was a pretty new home, but it had that awful like 90s oak kitchen cabinets and this awful, ugly countertop and backsplash. I painted the cabinets, I updated the backsplash, but I left the countertop. Because once I found the perfect color for the kitchen cabinets, the countertop actually wasn't ugly anymore. It was just really ugly with the backsplash and the counter or the kitchen cabinet color. So uh, look for ways where you can save a lot of money. Like if you don't need to replace the kitchen cabinets, don't. Also, you don't. Sometimes the doors are crap, but you don't often need to replace the actual cabinets. So maybe just replace the doors. So you know, value engineer it. And honestly, you should be doing that for your clients anyways, you know, and that goes back to the whole environmental thing. You know, if you have a client who's wanting to redo their kitchen, maybe, you know, maybe you think, I, maybe I don't make as much money off this project, but I, I keep some kitchen cabinets out of a landfill, you know, and you teach them, hey, we can actually just refinish these cabinets or, hey, we can just get new cabinet doors if you don't like these awful 70s weird doors that are on your kitchen. So thinking about ways that you can save money by reusing what you already have is good not only for your first project at home but honestly for every project i used to paint rental kitchen cabinets all the time and put in new like lbt flooring and at first i would get in so much trouble and in one building the owner the, um, the building manager found out and then the owner came in and got so upset and then a day later came back knocking on my door going actually um i want to hire you to to do the other apartments in the building <laughs> because I realized oh wait no this is great so I ended up getting a job out of it and that was before I worked in design at all I was just working retail back then that's awesome the next question is from Michaela when you and your crew did the interiors for the heroes from Queer Eye we're in Japan what aspect of Japanese interior design did you find the most interesting or surprising um I think one of the things I found the most surprising was, you know how in the States, like all of, most all of our leases say, don't paint the walls, don't put any nails in the walls. No, listen to that. We do it anyways. They don't in Japan. Like they are very much a rule following society. So if you notice, except for um, Kaye's house, because that was her mom's house, the bedroom. Um, and then Yoko, Yoko owned that house I was able to change. But if you look at, Khan's place, and if you look at Makoto's place, there's not even a piece of art hung on the wall, even when I'm done. Like, there's, if you look at Khan's place, I used like tension poles as, as um, easels for art. Um, I had to get really creative because I couldn't paint the walls, I couldn't put any nails in the walls, I couldn't even put like any 3M strips on the walls, nothing. So, we either, either had to use reusable wallpaper. Um, which I had to get like the weakest possible because I didn't want to risk ruining. The... Yeah, so that was the most surprising thing that they, when it says don't do anything to your apartment, they don't. Um, but one of the things I love about Japanese culture and design is how minimalist it is. 
Um, I'm, it's very much my aesthetic. I love Japan. I've spent a lot of time there. I was so excited when we found out that we were filming there. Um, I find that the more stuff that's in my home and the more chaotic it is, the more chaotic my mind is. Um, so I love Japanese culture because it's very minimalist, you know, but the, the quality, you know, the room might have nothing in it, but if you actually look at the round, like the finish of the walls, and it's funny, like in all the apartments, the walls on camera, they probably look all white, but if you, in person, you'll actually see that all of them had like this, like beautiful texture to the wall or this beautiful wallpaper that looked white on, on camera, but in person, like this, the detail, and that's, that's how you make really clean, minimalist, modern design beautiful, is it's in the quality of the detail of that minimalist design. You know, without it, minimalist design looks cheap and crap. So it's all about the, the finish. The next question is from another student. How was the design process different while working in Japan than in the US? Um, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to what I'm, what I'm able to do with the space and what I'm not. I mean, and one of the biggest issues was space. You know, like um, Khan's place was maybe 300 square feet. Um, Makoto and his was maybe 300 square feet. It was 300 square feet split up between two rooms and a bathroom. And then also if you think about the fact that, so each room was probably 125 square feet and you had all five of us in there. You had Makoto and his wife. What you guys don't see is there's three cameramen. There was our translator, Lena, probably an audio guy with this big audio bag and a producer. At multiple times when we were filming in Japan, all of a sudden we'd hear a and we realized one of our camera guys had perched himself up on a stove and was like pressing on the gas. And we're like, oh God, it's like you're on the gas. Like that's what little space we had. So the biggest difference and challenge was space. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier, a lot of people that aren't in design would think that small spaces were easier. Oh, you've got less to deal with. They're actually harder to make a small space functional. So it was the uniqueness was finding out ways to, to like, especially for Makoto's space, you know, we built out really cool, furniture that kind of just set inside of the space. Cause again, I couldn't touch the walls. I couldn't paint them. I couldn't attach them anything. So we in pieces built this loft bed with, you know, stairs with drawers in the stairs and a cool work desk and sofa underneath. So thinking the, thinking it was, a, what was the biggest challenge or what was the biggest difference? I guess the challenge I guess would be the difference, you know, just space um, and figuring out how to be creative when, you know, on TV, our normal tricks and trades are, you know, we'll put some paint and some wallpaper and, you know, we'll, you know, put some art on the wall. I couldn't do any of those things. So I had to find new ways to be creative, to give a visual impact without, you know, you know, again, because the easiest way to change the look of a room is paint. You know, it's the quickest, the cheapest, the easiest. Um, but I didn't have that option. So, although it's in, really adapted. in my room, I did with that bright pink. <laughs> The next question is, what inspired you to open your own interior design company? Um, actually, a lot of people I don't even think realize that I only opened up my own design firm in 2015. So just five years ago. Before that, you know, I had my own furniture stores and I, I would help customers. You know, we had design services, but it was just picking out furniture, you know, helping them space plan a little. It was not electrical plans and cabinet layouts and tile and, you know, elevations and it was not it was not what you actually have to do as a designer um but that was like the most fun part of my job you know 
owning and operating and running retail was not fun to me. It was always the design part of it, you know, going to High Point and picking out the furniture that we're going to carry and, you know, helping customers pick out their stuff. That was what really made me tick, you know, being on the sales floor in my stores. So it was always something that I, I knew I wanted to do more, but I honestly, I didn't really know how. I didn't think that because I didn't have the education that I'd be able to. But I mentioned earlier that my first design project was doing the show homes for the International Builder Show. Builder Magazine actually contacted me and they're like, hey, we hired Ketchum PR to tell us who the interior designer that speaks to millennials the most is. And they said, you. And I was like, interesting, because I'm not technically an interior designer, but you know, I didn't say that. Um, and they're like, you know, we want you to design the, inter- the show homes for the International Builder Show because we're working with builders this year to really highlight what the home of the future is going to be and how we can appeal to millennials and what millennials are really looking for in homes. You know, because as millennials, we have access to design so much more at our fingertips than, you know, our parents did, where our parents could walk into a housing development and be like, okay, well, I guess this is great. But where we walk into it and we're like, we got 5 million things on our Pinterest that tell us this sucks, you know? So really teaching builders how to think and a mindset more, how design and function really is important. So I, of course, when they asked me to do that, I was like, yes, of course I can do that. And funny enough, I had just recently decided to start closing my stores and to focus on product design and licensing because my license business had started taking off and my husband and I wanted to relocate to California. I had kind of been sick of the rat race in New York. And so I, all, all of my like really great team had already found other jobs because I made sure I give them a very good warning. So it was just me. And I'm like, well, and it, again, it was not just picking out furniture. It was a full-fledged design project. Like it was construction documents. It was everything that I had no clue how to do. So I just got online and I started Googling construction documents and floor plans and, you know, figuring out what all the little symbols and CAD meant and on the plans, what they needed. And I did all the construction documents in Photoshop. I took all the PDFs and I oh did the Photoshop, which I don't recommend because they're very hard to change afterwards. <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't know how to use CAD or any SketchUp or anything. So I had to teach myself how to do it. And then in the process of doing that, I ended up moving to LA and hiring one really great assistant who was a designer. He went to design school. He had the technical knowledge that I did not have. And we kind of made the perfect pair. And we installed those homes and they were a huge success. And the builder that built those came to me and said, hey, we really love what you did. We want you to help us change from the builder that I called them like the land of the Tuscan foe. Like all they built was this sea of these ticky tacky boxes on the hillsides. Mm -hmm. And now they're like premier home builder in Las Vegas. Like, you know, what you would call a track home all their homes look like custom homes. They're beautiful. So the first home they had me um, design was a mid-century design for them. And it ended up winning um, best design, interior design of the year from the National Association of Home Builders. Um, And that's kind of what kicked off opening up my own design work firm was I was like, oh, yay, this is something that I've always thought was fun. This is something that's very much been a passion of mine. And I realize now with bringing on the right people who know how to do the things that I don't know how to do, I can take my expertise in design and their expertise in design and computer skills and make a great business. And, you know, it's been fun from there. Yeah. We've been checking along ever since until now. <laughs> well, I'm going to wrap it up with one question. So in light of everything that's been happening, 
Um, where do you see the future of the interior design industry going based, whether it's us becoming more digital or how we're working as a team, but where do you see the future of the interior design industry going? You know, honestly, I, I saw the future of the interior design firm going, industry going more digital as it was before. You know, I really think that this situation has kind of been a bit beneficial to our industry. I think it has allowed us to see how the world will be working and give us kind of a leg up. And although it's been frustrating, you know, doing design projects digitally, taking classes digitally is, is, is frustrating, I know. It, it's allowed us to see how the world is gonna work because this, this situation, it's not gonna change quickly. You know, social distancing might end soon. You know, states are gonna open up. But people are going to be reluctant to put themselves in a room full of people for a long time. It, it, might, it might honestly never change. Um, you know, with global warming, I, I don't think this is probably going to be the first time a pandemic like this is going to happen, unfortunately. Do I think it's going to be a time, one of the first times we're, we're, we're going to be so poorly prepared? Yes. You know, I think moving forward, we're going to be more prepared. But I also think that's why great, you know, exercises like, COVID-19 has helped us be prepared of, you know, you guys are going to be able to take clients all over the world because you are going to know how to function digitally. You are going to know how to interact digitally. You're going to know how to sell yourself and your projects through a screen when before you wouldn't know how to. And I think it's going to open up opportunities internationally that we might not have ever had just because, you know, I just say just Zoom, but digital calls like this and digital classes, it's it's allowing us to bring ourselves closer together, no matter if we're close or not. Um, and I think it's going to open up opportunities that we never even thought of before. So it's going to be harder in the beginning. It's going to take a little bit of getting used to, but I think it's actually going to make our industry freer and have more opportunities to work on projects that we never got to work on before. You know, where every single industry is figuring out how to do things digitally, and that means even like construction, you know, framework walkthroughs, you know, we're figuring out how to do those digitally. And if we can do those digitally now, we can do those digitally in the future. And we can be designing little boutique hotels in Phuket, Thailand, that we would have never had the opportunity to do because we didn't, we weren't even able to wrap our heads around how, how could we do something so far away? Nothing is far away now. It's just right on our desk. So yes, it's going to change, but I think ultimately this is going to give us the tools and the knowledge and the strength to be more successful than we were before. And I also think it's going to give us the opportunity to really think about function and the way things work, especially in commercial spaces and hospitality spaces, you know, uh, because again, going back to, to climate change, the more we cut down rainforests, the more our temperature rises and permafrost defrost and animals that have been frozen for millions of years defrost and viruses they had get out to the environment, the more we're gonna have situations like this. So I think it gives designers more of an opportunity to actually be on the forefront of change. Um, I think it really gives us more opportunity for even more projects in the future to where they might not have been possible before. You know, Companies who need to bring designers in to make sure that their spaces function for social distancing. You know. Their spaces may have been beautiful. They might have just remodeled them. There, that wasn't an opportunity for a design project. So for all of us to be thinking about, again, not just the way it looks, but functionality, there is a whole new different level of functionality that needs to be happening in this day and age. 
Um, and it's, it's social distancing, you know, like for example, in offices, the open workspaces, A, I think we all started to realize those weren't great anyways, but they're really not great in the day of pandemics. You know, we need to think about how we can continue to have our workers come to work and be able to get paid and be able to still function and stay sane, but also be protected, um, you know, and protect themselves from maybe coworkers who, you know, refuse to wear their mask inside of Costco and don't think about the fact that it's not about them, it's about everybody else too. And that, you know, freedoms don't mean you can risk everyone else's life. Uh, I'm sorry to go there. Uh, but, you know, so again, I think it's gonna impact our industry a lot. You know, it is impacting it negatively right now, but it's impacting everybody negatively right now. You know, it's definitely impacted my design business. You know, I work with predominantly builders who do massive projects at once. So either those projects have been postponed or they've been canceled. Um, but again, I think that as things starts to open up, as the economy starts to stabilize a little bit, which I think it will soon, companies are going to start thinking about the future and, okay, you know, we realize now our company, we're gonna make it through. So how can we prepare our company to make it through and weather the storm even better the next time this does happen because it will happen again. So I think using this opportunity as designers to add, to add that on our list of skills, you know, really research how we can make spaces safer, especially in commercial and hospitality and restaurant spaces, safer for the people that are using them. Um, setting up restaurants to be, you know, for social distancing. Um, even if you're a, a, a product designer, you know, airline seats, then, you know, things like that, furniture. I, I think it opens up a whole new industry that we didn't have before that we're able to, I hate to use the word, take advantage of, but take advantage of it. You know, we, we're losing business in other ways right now. So we need to reinvent ourselves. And one of the ways we can reinvent ourselves is making sure that we're taking in pandemics into the equation when we do our design, because I think that big businesses, that's going to be something they're looking for. They're going to want designers to think about, all right, how are you protecting me and my team if, when, and if this happens again? Yeah. I completely agree. Overcoming adversity is something that is huge in all design facets, whether you're an interior designer, film producer, uh, you name it. But it looks like that's all the time we have for today's conversation. Thank you so much, Bobby, for your time and design expertise. Thank you so much, everybody. Love you, Bobby. Thank you. Bye, Scad. Love you. I'll see you all soon. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Bobby Burke. You can watch season five of Queer Eye and all its previous seasons on Netflix. Make it a binging weekend or stretch the episodes out. Either way, be sure to enjoy watching Bobby and the boys continue to transform the lives of their heroes. Also, take a cue from Bobby for your own living space. Rearrange some furniture in a room you haven't updated in a while. Try different arrangements and see how they affect your day-to-day. -day. Treat your living space as a constant experiment and enjoy making it truly yours, both fashionable and functional. While editing this episode, I finally painted the shelves in my bedroom. And if I can do it, you sure can too. Thank you for tuning in to SCADcast and On Creativity, executive produced by SCAD president and founder Paula Wallace, with original music by SCAD alumnus George Lovett. On behalf of the entire SCAD community, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay active. We'll see you next time.